Watch Lanier track it. He just can't go down and get it. Here it is again. What a great curveball. Now Warren Morris. It's a deep drive down the right field line. That ball is gone! LSU wins the College World Series on a home run by Morris! Hey now, welcome back, season 12, episode 2 of the Sportscasters, my name is Steve Bennett, we have a great show for you tonight, that's right, it is August 1st, late at night, heading into August 2nd, and I'm up late recording this so it can go out uh, for everyone on Tuesday morning. A uh, great show today, as I said, Sean McDonough is on the show. Sean's going to join us to talk about the first year of the ESPN contract uh, with the NHL, what he thought went well, what he thought didn't, uh, what they want to improve on, uh, and a whole bunch of different topics. We also get into the Red Sox a little bit, uh, but Sean McDonough will be our first guest. Second guest today is an author. His book, 1972, has been featured in the book club. Uh, and it's called 1972, and it's about a team that scored a goal that everyone remembers back in old 72, um, and that's the Canada team that defeated Russia in the Summit Series uh, back in 72. His name is Scott Morrison, and I really enjoyed this interview. I thought it was really interesting, really informative. I think the book is excellent, and um, he's going to join us uh, to talk about that, and I suggest this book. Uh, if you're interested, I want to thank our guests last week, Andrew Marchant, John Arand, and Aaron Schatz from Football Outsiders. And I want to thank everyone out there who listened and then reached out and welcomed me back and said things like, it's good to have you again. I wanted to read an email real quickly I got from a listener uh, named Bill McGrath, who's always been a very uh, special friend to the program, always reaching out. Um, and letting me know he's listening and thanking me. And it was just a really simple email, the subject, welcome back. And he said, just wanted to say welcome back, Steve. Started listening to the podcast this morning and haven't gotten to one last thing yet, which you talk about the last seven months. But I know that this has been a big challenge to you and your family. Glad to have your voice back in my life, my friend. Stay well, Bill. Brought a tear to my eye. Thank you so much, Bill. Really appreciate that, and I appreciate everyone who reached out uh, and welcomed me back. It feels good to be back. Uh, I'll be honest, I was a little disappointed uh, with myself last week. I thought in one last thing, I wasn't as vulnerable as I've been in the past, that I held back a little bit, that I didn't give you guys as much as I should have in that segment about everything that went on in the last seven months, and I apologize for that. Uh, I'm not really sure why um, I wasn't as vulnerable. Um, maybe 
I was vulnerable enough, and it's just my perception, but uh, I felt like I could have went further there. I thought I was mush mouth a little bit at times. I've already felt that this episode, I know that'll come. I'll get a little bit better. I'll enunciate more. I'll organize my thoughts better as I get into it and get going, but I was a little disappointed. I thought the interviews were good, though. I really liked Oren and Marshawn. I thought they were great. That was an idea I had to interview them together about their show, and uh, I thought that turned out great. I don't think anyone's done that. Oren and Marshawn together, I haven't heard. Obviously, they're on a ton of podcasts individually. Marshawn comes on this podcast all the time, Uh, but together I hadn't heard them, so I thought that that was a really interesting spot. And Aaron Schatz, of of course, comes on every year, and I always look forward to that. Uh, Next episode, fingers crossed, if everything works out, Joe Buck and Jeff Passan are scheduled. So that should be a good episode uh, next week. So uh, those are my thoughts. Uh, First things first, before we get into the first interview with Sean McDonough, um, I wanted to mention that a lot has happened in the last eight months seven months, however long I've been gone, that we didn't get to cover on the show, um, that you might have wondered what my opinion of it was. And one of those things was Italy not making the World Cup. And um, eventually, I'm going to put up an interview I did with Grant Wall right before I got sick. It never got out. It kind of, I recorded it. I was happy with it. It's really fun. It's funny. Uh, I was in rare form that day. Uh, And eventually I will post that. And that was actually before Italy failed to qualify in March. But I figured there might be some people wondering what my opinion on this is. And my opinion is it's an absolute disaster. Um, But not quite to the level that people think. I think that there has been a perception out there that missing the last two World Cups proves that Italy is not a football powerhouse anymore, that, um, you know, that the the team isn't good, they don't have good players, uh, all kinds of things like this. I don't know about that. You know, they just won the Euro, they beat England, they beat Spain, they beat Belgium to do so in the knockouts. Uh, I think that they have great players. Uh, obviously, I don't think they're as talented at striker as maybe they should be. I think Mancini was guilty maybe of being a little too loyal to the Euro players as qualifying went on. But the bottom line is, and I know you can't make excuses in sports, but the bottom line is if Jorginho makes one of two penalties against Switzerland, they're in the World Cup. And there's teams like Poland and other teams from Europe that did qualify that I know Italy's better than. Um, I think that the qualifying is wonky. And I do think that they'll never miss the World Cup again. And part of the reason is, obviously, there's going to be more teams. And it'd be hard to believe that with even more teams eligible, that Italy would miss it again. But I'm not as discouraged, maybe, as some people. Obviously, Chiesa was not available. Spinazzola was not available um, for the playoff. Doesn't excuse losing to Northern Macedonia. Um, you know, getting 25 shots to one and they're one going in and none of ours going in. That's the game, I guess, you know, that's soccer. Uh, they, they caught Donnarumma sleeping a little bit. It seems like to me, that's not a shot that should 
go past a goalie who had just spent the last few months winning awards as the goalie of the year and the goalie of this and the goalie of that. I don't think Buffon ever lets that in. You know, and if if Donnarumma wants to be the next Buffon, he's going to have to uh, be better than that. Um, But look at, I think the core from Donnarumma to midfielders like Verratti and Barella and strikers like Chiesa, I think is very, very good. And uh, I think they'll build around that with players like Pellegrini and um, whoever emerges. I think I still believe in Italian soccer. I think Serie A is the most exciting league of all of them, um, as I've been kind of watching. They had a great Scudetto race last year. Uh, Many teams were involved. Um, And uh, look at it's an extremely, extremely disappointing thing to not be in the World Cup. And it's going to be absolutely gutting when the tournament is going on and Italy isn't there. Uh, but if I'm looking at it as best I can with some perspective, you know, I know deep down that a guy who went 13 for 13 for Chelsea in penalties last year, if he can just make one of two against Switzerland. It's a completely different conversation. So I'm not ready to just throw the whole national team into the river and fire Mancini and scream that the Italian house is on fire. It's a, it's a, it's a tough, tough, tough lesson to learn. Uh, but hopefully they've learned it. And uh, we're going to move on. And in the next World Cup, um, I expect them to be contenders to win it. Because Italy should always be considered a contender to win every tournament that they're in. I believe that. And missing two World Cups in a row is a disgrace. It's a disgrace. There's no doubt about it. Losing to Northern Macedonia at home uh, with a chance to get into a game, uh, to play for a chance at the World Cup is a disgrace. I'm not letting them off the hook. I'm just not ready to uh, declare Italian soccer dead or anything like that. Uh, But obviously, I am a fan. I thought some people would be interested in my opinion on that. I got a couple other things written down that I think people might be interested in my opinion on from the last eight months. And we'll get to them over the next couple of weeks. All right. Let's get started. Let's take a break. We'll be right back with Sean McDonough. All right, our first guest today is PBP1 in the National Hockey League on ESPN. Uh, he's done Monday Night Football, does college football, Red Sox. He called the Joe Carter walk-off. He called the College World Series walk-off, and he's a friend of this program and a very nice guy to me, a Syracuse guy. A warm welcome to Sean McDonough. How you doing, Sean? I'm doing well, my friend. How are you? Very good. It's good to hear your voice. I'm glad to have you on today. It's good to hear yours. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's good to be back. It's good to be back for everybody. Uh, let's talk about the hockey season a little bit because I sent you a message and said, you know, when I was going through my health stuff, it was great to have the playoffs. I mean, they go for the full two months and every night you got something. And uh, it, it made me think when I was getting ready to talk to you, just how you think the first season went, right? ESPN hadn't been a 
a partner in a couple decades. Um, and it's a lot to hire everybody and get everyone going. And there's still the COVID thing here and there and certain limitations. But how do you think just kind of overall in a general sense to get us going, you think the first season went? I thought it went really well. And I think you touched on a couple of the points that are reasons why I think it went well. You know, first of all, I don't think we knew we had the rights until, you know, March and the season started on October 12th. So it was a Herculean effort for our management team, for Jimmy Pitaro, particularly, you know, the people who did it on a day-to-day basis after we got the rights, Norby Williamson, Mike McQuaid, Mark Gross, Linda Schultz. You know, they had to put together a huge team of people on the air, producers, directors, all the technicians, you know, get people involved in the, operation side, you know, figuring out the TV trucks and the travel and the hotels. And you know, there's so much that goes into it and to throw it together like that, put a team together like that, you know, when the, before the season started, you know, our management sent us kind of a pump up video for the season. And it had a lot of clips of the people who are going to be a part of the on air team. And when you're sitting there thinking, you know, we we have Chris Chelios and Mark Messier sure. and, you know, some of the the great women players of all time, Ray Ferraro, who I worked with, scored 408 goals in the NHL. You know, it was quite a cast that they assembled. So, you know, obviously it took a while to get up to speed. You know, we weren't doing many games early in the year. You know, and in my case, you know, I was probably averaging about a game every three weeks and you're trying to shed the rust of sure. 17 years of not really having done hockey and you're working with new people. Uh, some I'd never worked with at all. Some of the people I was working with had never done hockey. So you know, I thought we got a lot better as the season went along, thought we hit our stride in the playoffs. And you know, I think the most satisfying thing for me is just the response from the people in the hockey community. You know, I received in the broadcasting community, I received so many nice texts and emails and phone messages. You know, I was at a golf tournament last Monday on Cape Cod in memory of Mark Davis, who was a great player at Boston University and, died in 9-11. He was a scout for the Los Angeles Kings. He was on one of the planes that flew into the World Trade Center. You know, there were a lot of hockey players and coaches, and, you know, one after another, they came over and commended me for the job that I did, and, you know, the ABC and ESPN crew for the job that we did collectively. So when people who are in the sport, you know, feel like you did it justice, then that's really a good feeling. Yeah, and you know, I consider you a friend. I consider Joe Buck a friend, Kenny Albert a friend, and I'm a glutton for punishment. And sometimes during these games, I'll open up Twitter and I'll search your names just to see what people think, you know, because sometimes I worry that what I'm seeing is sort of clouded by my appreciation for you guys, you know? And mm-hmm. one thing I noticed is that in the beginning, it was a little bit more, you know, who did they hire? Who is this guy? Like, why isn't he doing football? Whatever. But it felt like as it went on and up to game six of the cup, that fell away. It felt like you guys really hit a gear by the cup that you didn't have before. That just that rhythm that comes with the playoffs, I think really, really helped you guys. And I think by game six, I mean, it was a, a true, you know, number one national broadcast. It felt huge. It felt like a big game. It was of course, but well, I appreciate that, you know, and I think that's important, right? If you're going to be the number one broadcaster for a sport, play by play person, you want people to feel like it feels big when they watch it. You know, I don't pay any attention to Twitter. You and I have discussed that before. Yes. Yeah. You know, I do know that and Joe and I have, Joe Buck and I have talked to you uh, about it. And, you know, Joe and I have talked to each other you know, about a lot of stuff. I agree with you completely. You know, Joe's become a dear friend. And, 
you know, when we had a game in St. Louis right in, late in the regular season, he and I went to dinner and, you know, there's probably nobody from what I understand in the history of our business who's been trashed on Twitter more than Joe. Yeah, you and, want proof? You know, and he's had one of the great careers of all time, and he's a great broadcaster. Yeah. He just got hired by ESPN for a ton of money because, you know, that's what his worth is. So, um, you know, I, I'm glad you felt that way. You know, I, I think, you know, it, it's natural, right? I mean, I hadn't done hockey in 17 years, yep. and the reality is, you know, I thought back then it was my best sport, but the reality that set in very quickly on October 12th when we got back into it is, wow, this game has changed a lot in 17 years, and it's a lot faster, yep. which from a broadcaster standpoint made it that much more difficult. You know, back in those days, you couldn't pass across the red line. You know, there was the two-line pass rules. Clutching you know, and grabbing. There have been several rules changes to just open it up and make it faster, and I think it's made the game better than it's ever been. But as a broadcaster, you can't look down at your notes to find a name or a number or a little nugget as part of a story that you want to tell. You really can't tell a story. You might be able to throw in, you know, one sentence nugget, but you better be watching the ice. And, you know, I got caught a few times early in the year, you know, looking down and then the puck's in the net. You're like, what the heck just happened? So, yeah, I, I think we all got a lot better as it went along. You know, as I said, I don't care about what people say on Twitter. What I do care about is, you know, as I mentioned, some of the text messages that I got from people like Marv Albert and Gus Johnson and Mike Breen, Kevin Harlan, Vern Lundquist, and Dick Stockton, and, you know, I could go on and on and on. Um, Me? And people, as I said, in the hockey world, players and coaches, you know, all who were very effusive, you know, beyond the norm. Um, you know, that's what I care about, the people who actually understand what this is all about. And, um, you know, not some guy – in his basement who thinks you're biased against his team. I think we'd all drive ourselves crazy if we paid much attention to that. If you like, I know Twitter, whatever, right? But you go on. Fifty people think you're biased against the Lightning. Fifty people think you're biased against the Avalanche. Every night. yeah, it's unbelievable, yeah. <laughs> right? And it's the same people watching the same thing. Yeah, I will say this, right? We went to Tampa Bay to do a game, and I think it was in the Rangers series in the. Eastern Conference Final. There's a nice guy who, you know, runs the elevator, goes up and down to the press box. So we got on there one day and he said, I'm a little disappointed in you. I said, Oh, no, what did I do? He said, Well, you, you seemed a little biased toward the Rangers the uh, other night. And, uh, you know, and as you know, see what happens <laughs> is, you know, you're doing a home game, the home team scores. You know, your call is going to be louder and more emotional because you're yelling over the crowd. Right, and the <laughs> and horn. all the arenas, the yeah. crowd is incredibly loud. Especially and, MSG. You know, that's one thing that is a staple of the Stanley Cup playoffs, and it was true everywhere we went. And I would say Carolina at the top of the list. I mean, okay. The atmosphere and the noise in that building. You walk out of that building, you feel like you were in a, you know, Las Vegas nightclub with the decibel level. You know, like your ears are ringing for days. I don't think my hearing has recovered yet from the NHL playoffs. So... <laughs> Um, you know, I think that's where the bias thing comes from. Sure. Oh, he, he got so excited when the other team scored. Well, when your team's the home team and they score, I'll probably be equally excited. But, you know, to think that we care who wins or loses, I don't really, I, I don't give a crap at all. And um, I just want good and exciting games, right? You hope for yeah, a great moments, overtime game or, a, you know, a close game that's decided at the end, you know, the team that's down by a goal, storming the net, trying to tie it. You know, those are the kinds of things that we hope for, but I don't care who wins. Yeah. Touch them all, Joe. You want one of those, right? Uh, right. That's what you want. That's why we do this. Yeah. It's, it's funny because watching the, 
the the teams and and the people around the crew around you seemed like Emily Kaplan was kind of one of the breakout stars. I know she got a little gruff for the mask thing, which wasn't her fault. You know that was an NHL rule that they seemed to kind of let up on at the very end when she was out on the ice with the cup. But seems like she she is not afraid to ask a really poignant question um, right in the middle of a big spot like that, which can't be easy. Um, what do you think? No, what do you think of Emily? And I agree with you completely. I didn't know Emily at all, other than you know I had read some of her work over the in the past. Um, So when they told me, you know, we were all going to be working together, as I said, I didn't know at all. And I think she's terrific on and off the air. You know, we've become good pals, and I told her many times how much I appreciate uh, how good she is, and I thought she got better. You know, it's hard to not have much TV experience and get thrown into that, right, where right. you're on the number one team uh, in the sport, you know, at least for ESPN. I don't want to diminish the, the Turner people. I mean, they're number one team. We're probably co-equals. You know, they'll have the uh, Stanley Cup final next year. So, But I, I thought she was terrific. You could see that she got more comfortable with the TV part of it as it went along. And she's a journalist. You know, she is plugged in. She does get scoops. She has the trust of a number of people in the sport who help her get excellent information. And she does ask excellent questions. You know, some of them, you know, are, I don't want to say they're strange because that's not the right word, you know, but they're, they're interesting. They're unique. You know, they're different. It's not just not the, you know, what do you think of your power play in the first period? You know, it's, uh, so I think she's excellent. And it was really fun getting to know her too and becoming her friend because she's an awesome person. You mentioned Turner. And I just wonder, do you ever peek over there? Do you ever watch like, hey, what's Kenny and them doing? You know, like, is that or you just straight ahead? Don't even think about it because it's it's an interesting spot where the sport is split sort of 50 50 and you guys alternate events. And there are, you know, I said in the beginning, P by PBP one in the NHL, but there's really two. Right. It's you and Kenny are both the number one guys, depending on who's broadcasting the game that night. Right. If you're watching Eastern Conference Finals, it's Sean. If you're watching the Western Conference Finals, it's Kenny. Both great, right. both great people. Do you, did you find yourself checking in to see what they were doing, how they were doing, or did you just straight ahead and worry about ESPN and what you were doing? No, we were watching. I mean, as you know, I mean, it's such a grind. You know, I knew, you know, I'd wrap my mind around, okay, this is basically going to be two full months, right? We're going to start on yep. May 2nd, and it could go as late as I think June 28th was the last possible day if it went seven games. So you know it's going to be two months. But I had no idea – you know, really what a grind, and I don't mean that in the negative sense, but I mean, it is, it's a grind. <laughs> it's physically a grind. Yep. It's mentally a grind. You know, it's emotionally a grind. I slept in my bed. I got COVID at the beginning of May, so I missed uh, some games. You know, we did three or four games the first week. Remember, we did three nights in a row in New York and Carolina and back to New York. And I think that's probably where I got COVID um, with that busy schedule, you know, traveling the morning of the game doing the game and then, you know, flying back the next morning, doing another game. But, uh, you know, it's, I slept once I got healthy and got back in mid May, I slept in my own bed once from May 15th or so till we were done in late June in a month and a half, basically. So, you know, it's, uh, it's fun. It's exhilarating, but you do run on adrenaline and coffee, (laughs) And, um, you know, I, I marvel at the players. You know, we were in Tampa. We were in the same hotel as the New York Rangers. I was in an elevator with a couple of the players and just looking at them. I mean, they looked like they were completely 
beat up and exhausted. And I said to them, like, I'm just standing in a booth talking about the games, and I'm really, really oh, tired. I, yeah, I can only imagine what it's like for you guys who are out there, you know, every other night knocking the crap out of each other. And, you know, they said, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a physical, it's, a, it's an endurance test in every way, physically, mentally, emotionally. And I think that really worked against them. You know, they, they went to seven games in the first two rounds and never even had a couple of extra days. Uh, you know, yeah, you they could were see gassed. them run out of gas. Yeah. I thought in the Eastern Conference Final against Tampa. Yeah, they were gas, and Tampa then was gassed. You know, you put all three years together, and it seemed like in Game Six, especially, they came out really, really hot. But by the third period, they needed that goal. It seemed like they didn't have their legs. You know, hockey players are warriors. The playoff is a battle of attrition. You know, I watched it happen to my Sabers in 2006 when. Game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals. We wake up the day of. Jay McKee has a staff infection. That means we have four of our regular NHL defensemen out, only two in. You know, it's really difficult. I remember this. My brother played D1 at Yale. And I remember his senior year in the playoffs, they played Harvard. And they went to a best of three. And the um, the, the third game went to triple overtime. And uh, Jimmy Vesey scored a rebound goal, and, and Harvard won. Now, they both got to go to the NCAA tournament, luckily. So it was a happy ending in the end. But I remember as the, the guys were coming out to say goodbye, I remember this defenseman, Mitch Wittick from Chicago. He came up, and, and he was on the ice when the goal was scored, and he felt like it was his fault. And I remember he was crying, walking out of Ingalls, dragging his leg behind him. You know what I mean? Yeah. He couldn't even walk. He was he was crying because he felt like he let everyone down, which he didn't. It wasn't his fault. No big deal. Is a rebound. Jimmy Vesey's a great player, and he, he you know he got a goal. No big deal. Happens. Right. But he felt like it was his fault, and he was dragging out. And I just remember thinking, like, man, hockey players. You know what I mean? And and, that, and oh then yeah, took, yeah. I mean, you know, they, they you know, I hate to use the word warriors because it's you know any analogy sure. between sports Fair. and war is way off. But they're. Right. You know, they're tremendous battlers. They're tremendous competitors. They lay it all out there. You probably saw the same thing I saw, which was the day after the Stanley Cup final ended or two days after, you know, there was a tweet that came out with all of the injuries yep. that the Lightning players were dealing with. And oh, it was yeah. this very long list of serious things. I think two of them were playing with torn meniscuses in their knee. One guy had a separated shoulder. You know, we knew Ryan McDonough had a mangled hand from when he took a puck off the hand in the, Ranger series Point. in the Eastern Conference final, you know, almost all of them were significantly injured and playing through it, you know, and it's, it goes to the commitment and the dedication and how important it is to win that cup. And it goes to show that locker room too. I mean, those guys are champions, you know what I mean? So there's something, yeah, I yeah, mean, what, what the lightning did, I mean, the three Pete to me would have cemented them as one of the great teams of all time. But even to win two in a row and get back to the final the third time, uh, with the schedule such as it is, as, as you and I just discussed, and in the salary cap era where it's really yep. hard to keep your nucleus together, you know, to go out and uh, basically remake their bottom two lines, who are really important to their two cups, and and get back there again and have a chance to win it, you know, it, it says a lot about their management and their coaching in addition to the talent and dedication of the players. And, of course, it helps when you have a great goaltender. I didn't think Vasilevsky was at his best in the playoffs, you know, compared no. to what he'd been in yep. the past. You know, I think if you ask me based on what I saw this year, I think uh, Igor Shosturkin's probably the best goalie in the league, in the world right now. But, um, but still, what they did is remarkable, and they deserve a tremendous amount of credit. And, you know, the reality is they lost to the better team. I don't think anybody sure. around hockey would argue 
um, that would try to make the claim that Tampa Bay is a more talented team than Colorado. That Colorado team's a wagon, and yep. it wouldn't surprise me. It was their time. Uh, if next year we're talking about them winning it two years in a row. Sure, it was their time. I, I was listening to your call, the final call, and um, I was just thinking about how many famous final calls you've made, and we've talked about them on this show. You know, touch them all, Joe, the walk-off in the College World Series, buzzer beaters in the NCAA tournament. Uh, what did it feel like to call the final seconds of a Stanley Cup final? Just thoughts, yeah, I didn't thoughts say anything memorable. I think I just said Colorado's won the Stanley Cup. You know, I, I don't like, and you and I might have talked about this before, you know, I don't like to script things or try to come up with some really clever, flowery thing. You know, it's their moment. Uh, winning the Stanley Cup is more than enough. I think that speaks for itself. The words speak for, you know, document what happened and get out of the way and, and sure. let our crew do their great work with all the shots and the incredible emotion and, you know, that sort of thing. Because it's an incredibly emotional experience you know, for a lot of it reasons why we talked about how incredibly draining it is. And, you know, every single one of these guys has been dreaming about that since the first time they put on skates. And very few people get to get their name on the greatest trophy in North American sports. So, you know, it's, uh, I don't think there's the need to say anything. Like in the case of the, the Blue Jay home run, and touch them all, by the way, was the late, great Tom Cheek, who oh, I right. admire right. greatly. I've heard and, so um, many different calls of that home run. There's you, yeah, there's him, there's Buck, I think, has one, right? Still world champions, and it doesn't matter. That's but, right. I'm sorry. But, you know, again, that wasn't scripted, but it was just sort of going with the moment. And, you know, the... The difference is like that ended right on a on a play that came out of nowhere. I mean, as the final seconds were ticking down, you know, sure, um, Colorado's about to win. Whereas you know, Joe Carter's home run, they went from trailing in the game to winning the World Series on one swing that took them from you know trailing in the game to winning the game and the World Series. So right. poor Mitch Williams. You know, there was something shocking about that. So I, I think you're better off if you just try to say whatever comes into your head as appropriate in that moment and you know we talk about being good in the moment and i think the best play-by-play people are good in the moment and then get out of the way and um so you know i i don't think what i said will live for all time i probably said the same thing a lot of other broadcasters have said when teams have won the stanley cup but um you feel blessed to have been there and you know as i said i think the best team won Hey, it's not every year it gets served and up. And that'll mean I'm biased against Tampa no. Bay, right? No, of course not. I think Tampa Bay fans know it, too. Back to our Twitter conversation. Yeah. Yeah. See, I knew he was cheering. He said this better. Yeah. <laughs> he liked Colorado all the way. Uh, it's not every year yeah. you get it served up on a platter for you like uh, Doc Emmerich did that year the Kings won, right? The Kings are the Kings. Like, that's okay. Right. That's a good one. But, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that was there you know, for and you. there's nothing wrong. You know, to me, that's not sappy or goofy no, that's it's great, good. It's you know? great. he's great yeah he was you know one of the great broadcasters of all time in any sport so and he did what you said the kings are the, the kings and he got out doing of this right you know yeah. people say oh it must have been hard to follow mike emmerich well sure it is but anytime you get a job like this whether it's doing the world series or doing the super bowl or doing the nba final you know you're following somebody great yeah. right so i mean that's always going to be the case for any of us who do this you know i, I hope someday when i'm finished Somebody will think there's a, there was a high bar for them to follow. But, you know, following Mike is part of what makes it an honor, you know, because yeah. he was so great. And so was Gary Thorne before him. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, I was you know, say. To me, I, I think the hockey broadcasters, you know, collectively, you know, I always idolized Dan Kelly. You know, I, to me, he was the greatest of all time. It was a shame that he died so young. 
Yep. But Rick you know, I, I go back and watch some of the classic games. You know, as a kid growing up here in Boston, idolizing Bobby Orr. Um, you know, Dan Kelly called the uh, the famous go and Bobby Orr scored. They beat the St. Louis Blues and Bobby got tripped by Noel Picard, went flying through the air and you know, there's a great picture of that that every kid in New England who I grew up with had in their, and a statue. In their and I still have it on my office wall here in my home office. And so, you know, Dan Kelly called that. He called the Canada Cup uh, when Gretzky and Lemieux went in, you know, and yeah. uh, in overtime. Sure. Um, How you know, he's just, he, was, he was a great broadcaster. And, um, you know, so there, the, there are so many great hockey broadcasters over the years. And to just be another person who's had a chance to follow in their footsteps is a great blessing and a great honor. Howard, Chuck, Lemieux, and Gretzky. Not a bad line to throw out in the last minute there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, know. I mean, and Dan's call of that. I remember when he died, Mike Lynch, who's a great sportscaster here, you know, 6 and 11 p.m. sports on Channel 5. Um, he said, Dan Kelly uh, died today. You may not know the name, but if you're a hockey fan, you'll recognize the voice. And then he uh, he played that clip of, you know, them racing up the ice and, yeah, I got chills, and every now and then I just go to YouTube and find it and play it because it's, you know, it's yeah. to me, it's if you're into broadcasting, it's as good as they get, you know. And, and people um, like Dan, like Jack Buck, you know, we just talked about it, Steve, about being great in the moment. You know, those guys nailed it every every time in the big moment, and you hope uh, if you're in that position that you nail it when you know some of those special moments happen. Yeah, I was spoiled here growing up. I had Bob Cole when I got to watch um, Hockey Night in Canada. I had Ted Darling, the great, the great late Ted Darling, and of course Rick Jenneret. So an amazing. Oh age. yeah. You know what's a call I always mix up? Talk going back to mixing up Touch Them All Joe is I always kind of confuse who said what on the Kirk Gibson home run because Vin Scully and uh, Jack Buck have great calls of that. And uh, one of them yeah. says, "I can't well, believe what Buck I just said, saw." I don't believe what I right, just Right, that's saw. Buck. And then I forget what yeah. I forget what Vince said, but I screw those up too. Yeah, I mean Jack. Jack had that great call. Yep. Jack had um, when Kirby Puckett hit the home run. We'll see you tomorrow night. Send the game. I think it was game seven. And yep. we'll see you tomorrow night. Yes, it's like it's the perfect thing to say. Um, you know, and he did it over and over again. You know. Uh, Ozzy Smith at the home run. He was, you know, in the St. Louis game. Go crazy, folks! Go, yeah, crazy. go crazy. No, it's like that's that's not scripted. That's a guy who was born to do what he's doing. And I've told Joe that many times. You know, when I again we we're just talking about when I got the CBS baseball thing, had the chance to do the World Series for a couple of years. I followed Jack Buck. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, I'm taking Jack Buck's place. You know, that guy's one of the greatest broadcasters of all time. And it's part of what made it a great honor. And I've told Joe, in my opinion, you know, nobody, you know, Jack was very fortunate that, you know, he wound up and part of it's because you're great. And they give you the opportunity to call a lot of big games, but you know, he wound up in a lot of situations where a lot of dramatic things happen and he just nailed it every single time. So yeah. it's part of uh, what makes the job fun and special. You just hope that you get a couple of those opportunities as you go along. And then, of course, in 2000. And I'm hoping we get a, you know, we have three more Stanley Cup finals here as part of the seven-year deal. You know, we and Turner are alternating yep. years. Sabres um, are going to so win one. We'll get three more shots at it if the nice people at ESPN want to keep me around long enough to do that. And 
Oh, you're hoping that someday, right? You get a game-winning overtime game seven goal. Yeah. Um, at uh, first, so maybe we'll get that lucky sometime in the in our next at bats. Yeah, it happened in Buffalo, and uh, you'll give me an iconic call. There you go. I we're wa- getting better. Yeah, we're getting there. I was very Couple impressed years away. by the way they played in the second half. Yeah, but, good uh, draft. Yeah, I really yeah. like Coach Granado. He's, he's obviously great. a really sharp guy yeah. and a very enthusiastic guy. I think he's the perfect guy for a young team like that that's on the way up. And, you know, it was, it'd be great to see the fans come back. I understand, you know, why they're not going. Yeah. They're getting They've there. They've been not be very there. good for a long time. Yeah. And there's, you know, some other issues as well. But, um, yeah, I, I think they're definitely heading in the right direction. Oh, real quick, just to close the loose end, 2011, the classic World Series game uh, was at uh, Texas and St. Louis. And St. Louis hits the walk-off home run. And uh, Joe Buck was able to hit us with the I'll see you tomorrow night. Just like his dad did in '91. Oh yeah, I got chills. Cool. When yeah, that happened. cool symmetry. I, mean, I really there. did. It was a. It was so cool. You yep. know, to, to it was again the right thing to say, and to be able to say it as kind of a tip of the cap to your late great father. Amazing. You know, that, that was, and especially from somebody you know, for somebody like me who was really close to my dad, like Joe was to his. You know, it. Uh, and our legend. dads were friends, and they yeah. actually worked together. Legends. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, that was really, really cool. And a part of what makes Joe great. And Joe is great. You know, people on Twitter think he stinks can, they're nuts. you know, find a life. Yeah, they're I mean, nuts. It, it, people who think that have, you know, we're all entitled to our opinion, right? You, you might think somebody's great. I might think they're, they're terrible. So people are entitled to that. But I, I have never understood that the people who don't think Joe Buck is good. If you, if you talk to people in our business, like who understand you know how what goes into it and you know the mechanics of play-by-play and uh there's a reason why the guy's done like 42 million world series (laughs) and i don't even know how many super bowls you know you don't get that opportunity if you're not great so there was people who don't think so can find something else to do there was some people very disappointed with his performance in the all-star game the other night which of course he didn't call um sean mcdonough here with us quickly two more things i'll let you go you've been very generous with your time Last thing on hockey, I just wonder, going into next season, uh, what when you look back at this season and you move forward to next season, what do you want to improve on? What do you want? Uh, what, what do you? What are your goals for next year? What are you hoping to uh, to do with the broadcast? Well, you know, one of the things that I'd like is, when possible, and I've had conversations with our bosses at ESPN, particularly in the playoffs. Um, if there's the opportunity to move the broadcast position closer to the ice, you know, NBC, sure. from what I'm told, used to buy out seats, you know, in, in the lower levels and build a small booth for Doc so you can actually see what's happening. You know, we in both Denver and Tampa and some of these other places, most of these other places, you know, you're dangling from the ceiling. If, if you bought the worst seat in the arena, <laughs> you know, which I think most people would consider the last row of the upper deck, I had a worse vantage point than you. We were above you and set further back. So, you know, like we mentioned, the elevator operator in Tampa. In Tampa, the arena level is on one. The ice is on level one. You take the elevator to the seventh floor. So you're seven stories above it, right? Trying to figure out, did that puck hit his pad or graze the <laughs> post or hit his shoulder? Or did he just miss the net? And then, and you can't call it off the monitor. So, you know, you know, people say, well, you, you, we can see it clear as a bell. Well, Maybe you saw it more clearly than I did because you can watch it off the monitor. I can't. 
you know, the people are too small. The game goes too fast. Sometimes the camera cuts away to a tight shot of a guy checking somebody in the corner, making a move along the boards, um, which is disorienting if you're the play-by-play person trying to call it off the screen. I asked a bunch of play-by-play guys this year, do you ever call it off the monitor? And every single one of them said, no, you can't. So, you know, so uh, I'd like to be closer. You know, there are some booths that are low, you know, uh, Pittsburgh, Las Vegas, um, New Jersey, even St. Louis. It's not really a booth. You're kind of in the camera well, but you're in the front row of the balcony, basically hanging over center ice. That's great. But so it really affects your ability to do your job a bit more uh, to do it better. Cause you, when you know for sure what happened, you know, that was a pad save or it didn't miss the net or, you know, it hit the post or it's an, it's it's just easier. So sure. you know, I'm I'm hopeful that uh, you know next year we'll get more low booths. You know, I think that would help my own performance because there were too many times I said things to answer your question that that weren't right. You know, like it even got to the post where I said to our the point where I said to our audio guy uh, Buddha Dan Bernstein is tremendous. Could you give me a little bit more of those net mics in my headset so sure. that when so the puck hits it. the post, yeah. I know it hits the post. Yeah. So now he does that. The first game that we, it's basically cranky in my ear. I hear ping. You know, there's a shot. So I think it hit the post. Well, then you look at the replay. It didn't hit the post. What hit the post was the goalie skate when he <laughs> slid over and it made the same noise. <laughs> so that's great. You know, people at home are saying, what's wrong with that guy? I didn't hit the post. All well, right. I, I was kind of going by the sound. That's um, funny. And because I'm on the, you know, at MSG, you're on the 10th floor of the Sitting building. on the roof, yeah. And the arena level's on five. You know, the TD Garden, you're on the ninth floor of the building. The arena, the ice is on the third story. So, you know, we're just so far away. And the people don't want to hear excuses. But, um, you know, I'd like to be more accurate more often. You know, what you wind up doing is hesitating or not really. Someone told me Mike Emmerich had a great expression. And he would say, and it did not go. Which... Is with that his is way one. of saying, yep. like, I'm not sure what happened. <laughs> but it's not in the net. <laughs> but I know the puck didn't go in the net. Right. So um, I probably need to come up with my own version of, and it would not go or did not go, uh, just to cover me in the instances where you're not really sure what happened. Yeah, so-and-so didn't finish it, something like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, but there, it's, there are times when it's super tough. I mean, that puck's not very big. You're six, six or seven stories above the ice. Um, they're moving very fast. There's traffic in front of the net. And even things like, did the puck get tipped? I mean, you know this as a hockey fan. One of the big differences in hockey from 17 years ago to now is how great the players are at deflecting the puck oh, out of midair. You know, it, whether it's in the slot, whether it's at the top of the crease, you know, guys like Chris Kreider. You know, he scored so many goals this year just with his amazing hand-eye coordination, but there are a lot of guys who do that. And sometimes, you know, they're in traffic. Um, you know, it's very subtle in terms of the puck changing movement. A lot of times it just changes direction enough to throw the goalie off, but it's not blatantly obvious that it got tipped. So it's one of the benefits of having Ray Ferraro down there because when he's right at ice level, you know, he can see that a heck of a lot better than... Uh, people who are up where we are can. So anyway, yeah, you just have to the, avoid. No one wants to hear about our problems. But, you just have to avoid Calgary. You know, so trying to be more accurate more often in the description of what's going on would probably be my number one goal. That's fair. You just have to avoid Calgary. So you don't have to walk across that catwalk. That looks like the most frightening thing. Yeah, ever. we never got there this oh, year. Thank God. Uh, as a matter of <laughs> fact, I didn't do any games in Canada. Um, 
part of that was just because of the COVID stuff sure. and the difficulty and going across the border. And, you know, God forbid if you tested positive or something, you're up there for weeks. So, um, you know, it's, which is disappointing, right? Because those are great venues and great fan bases and, and a number of excellent teams. But um, we did not get up there this year, and I'm hopeful that we will next season. All right, Sean McDonough, that's enough. I, I don't need to ask another one. That was great just like that. Thank you so well, much for doing this. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I'm glad yep. your health is better, and um, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah, enjoy the baseball and the college football. Maybe we'll, we'll catch up in the fall sometime. I hope so. Always a pleasure, my friend. Be well. Could've used a few pounds Tight pants, points, harder down She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points on her own, sudden way up high I want to thank Sean McDonough for being on the podcast today Always appreciate him Pretty cool to be able to consider him a friend And it's an honor that he's willing to make time uh, to be on this podcast as often as he does. Uh, Thank you to Sean McDonough. All right, book club update. Uh, Quick one. First of all, let me talk about the books uh, that we're definitely promoting still. One is, of course, the Football Outsiders Almanac 2022, the essential guides of the 2022 NFL and college football seasons. We had Aaron Schatz on last week. Yes, we had Aaron on last week. Aaron Schatz. That's his name. Thank you. See, Mushmouth. He was on last week, Season 12, Episode 1. You can check that interview out. Uh, And after you do, please pick it up. The Football Outsiders Almanac 2022. It's one of the best uh, NFL and college preview publications out there. And uh, you can get it digitally on Amazon or you can get a hard copy as well. Uh, And you can go to footballoutsiders.com for more information on that. Uh, The other book, in a minute, we're going to take a break and talk to this author. It's called 1972, the series that changed hockey forever. It's by Scott Morrison. I'll be honest, I thought I might not enjoy this book because eh, I'm not a big fan of Hockey Canada, right? They're my rival. Uh, I find them to be cocky and arrogant and entitled. And I say that to Scott uh, in the interview. Uh, But I was pleasantly surprised at how much I love this book. It's a great story about hockey and politics of the 1970s and the Cold War and uh, a really interesting look into the lives of hockey players back in the 1970s. Um, The story of putting the teams together is amazing. It's just a really cool book. I'd love for you to check it out. Again, it's called 1972, The Series That Changed Hockey Forever by Scott Morrison in a minute. We're going to take a break and talk to him. Now, there's one other book, and I mentioned it last time. And I've noticed recently there's a move that's happening with the publishers and the book club. Because I've been doing this as long as we've had this podcast. And for years and years and years, I've sent the same pitch. I still do. I still very clearly say that we will plug the the book on the show. And in exchange, we asked for a copy of the book to read, and I read all the books, and we asked for an interview with the author. 
very clearly stated, I do this over and over, and I've done it for years and years and years. And for years and years and years, and seasons and seasons and seasons, was never a problem. If someone agreed to have their book featured on the book club, they would send a book, and then they'd be on the podcast. And in the last year, or maybe two, uh, maybe as the number of podcasts has increased, um, and the number of areas available to promote maybe has increased. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, this trend has emerged. And the trend is they agree, they send a book, and then I email back and forth to try to set up the interview, and the interview never comes. This happened with Tinderbox. Um, this happened with another book, and I don't want to say the wrong book because I'm not remembering it off the top of my head. But it seems to be happening again with Ricky, The Life and Legend of an American Original by Howard Brandt, or Bryant. I'm sorry. Again, mush mouth, mush head. I did what I always do and sent this email and this pitch out. I was interested in the book. Uh, I let them know that I would be going to the hospital for surgery and that after surgery uh, would be when the interview was. And uh, they responded, that sounds great. When you're ready, send us an email. We'll set up an interview. And uh, now there's no, seem to be no interview. Um, I get, oh, he's traveling. Oh, there's this. Oh, there's that. And look it. Maybe you might think it's unprofessional in me to throw people under the bus like this. Uh, but I read this book on my hospital bed so that I would be prepared to do this interview because we agreed to do it. And I held up my end of the bargain. I've promoted the book. I read the book. I'm prepared for the interview. And they agreed to give the interview. And now what's going on? And hey, maybe I'm going to be wrong. Maybe Howard uh, Bryant is going to uh, be on the show soon. But I'm not emailing anymore. Uh, I've done my job. I've reached out many times. I'm not going to mention the book again, of course, unless he emerges. Uh, but I'm, I'm doubtful that that's going to happen. And certainly it never happened with Tinderbox. Uh, James Andrew Miller never appeared. And that book was like a billion pages, and I read all billion. And I did it as quickly as I possibly could uh, because we had agreed on a day and a time for the interview. We actually agreed on several days and times. Uh, for that interview, and I kept getting stiffed over and over, and I don't like it. So that's where that stands. But uh, honorable good people like Scott Morrison, who we're going to talk to in a minute, and Aaron Schatz of Football Outsiders, they deserve these plugs, and I'm happy to give them the essential guide to the 2022 NFL and college football seasons, the Football Outsiders Almanac, in 1972, the series that changed hockey forever. Let's do it. Let's take a break. We'll be right back with Scott Morrison. If there's a goal that everyone remembers, it was back in old 72. We all squeezed the stick and we all pulled the trigger.
Our second guest today has been covering hockey since 1979, including stints at the Toronto Sun, where he covered the Toronto Maple Leafs and the NHL. He's also provided hockey analysis for Sportsnet, Hockey Night in Canada. He's been on CBC television and radio. He's twice served as the president of the Professional Hockey Writers Association, and he's the author of a great hockey book that I'm really excited to talk about today called 1972. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the for the first time to Scott Morrison. Hey, Scott, how you doing today? I'm doing well, Stephen. How are you? Very good. 1972, the series that changed hockey forever. That's the one. Yes. <laughs> I, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. I only have one small bone to pick with you, so we'll get that out of the way early. Okay. No tragically hip reference? Jeez, uh, cultural meltdown by me, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. If there's a goal that everyone remembers, it was back in old 72. We all squeezed the stick. We all pulled the trigger, right? Fireworks? Yeah, there you go. My bad. <laughs> the very- that, just, that just tells you, once again, how big an impact that series had in our yeah. world. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and you did a great job of illustrating it in the book. And um, let's kind of start from the beginning and... I didn't realize this, that the players, especially the Canadian players, it seems like, really thought this was going to be more fun, like an exhibition kind of, the intensity of an all-star game, but that wasn't the case. When this was coming together, was that the intention? And then when the games were played, that was just impossible, that of course the intensity came? or Because you write a lot about it in the book, Just and a lot of the players mention it too, that they were told or thought that this was going to be this, you know, kind of all-star type game, kind of exhibition, kind of fun thing. Well, you have to remember back at the, in 1972, back in the day, you didn't have the World Wide Web and, uh, you know, you didn't have satellite TV and you you didn't know about the other countries, the other teams, the way we, we would today. You didn't have that exposure. You might have seen them, you know, they might have seen the Soviets play, a game or two and at Olympics, uh, but I doubt the world championships. I know the world championships wouldn't have been televised around the world, that sort of thing. So there wasn't a great exposure uh, to the Soviets and to know how good they were. Obviously, some people like a Ken Dryden and there were others that uh, the late Billy Harris and uh, and a few others who had advised that these guys are better than you think. But nobody could fathom that they would be anywhere close to as good as the NHL. And maybe that was just the blindness of us living on our side of the world and, and not wanting to recognize in part uh, that a communist country, because there was that great divide between the East and the West, communism and democracy and capitalism, and uh, and not wanting to believe they could be anywhere as good as the NHL players, who we were convinced were the absolute best in the world, because that's what we grew up knowing. Um, and even a player like Dryden mentions in the book that, uh, you know, I knew that the Soviets were good. He'd played against them for uh, on a Canadian amateur team, but he said, I, I still couldn't vision how they would stack up against the very best NHLers. And, uh, and so a lot of people were of the mindset, uh, once the series, uh, came together and certainly when the team was put together, that it was going to be a romp for the NHLers and that it would be, uh, you know, like an exhibition series. It wouldn't be as intense as ultimately it became. Um, 
and you know they would just walk through this have a good time and that's why they built a you know a stopover in in Sweden between the games in Canada and the sure. games in Moscow because that was going to be a little vacation for the players well it wasn't and they even if you remember they scheduled a game in in Prague Czechoslovakia after the series because that was going to be a little vacation stopover and a tribute to Stan Mikita but needless to say that's the last thing they really wanted to do at that point although they did want to honor Mikita but so that mindset was there but a few minutes into game one on September 2nd in Montreal uh, that mindset changed uh, rather dramatically you know as, as an American who's a huge hockey fan grew up in a hockey family played hockey my brother played D1 hockey you know when I think about the U.S. and Canada rivalry what I think fuels it from our end is a belief whether it's true or not that there's a certain entitlement to Canadian hockey players and Canadian players that, you know, this is our game. We're the best at it. We're better than you. And I think at times that served Canadians well, um, that, you know, where it comes off then as confidence that they feed off of and that they have won, you know, Olympics and world juniors and other competitions because of it. And then I think at other times it's hurt them. And maybe 1972 is an example of that, that they just felt like, we're the best. We know they're the best, and pff, there's nobody in Russia that can compete, right? No, definitely. I mean, hockey is our game. That was the motto. <laughs> that right. was the belief. And uh, you know, I think since since '72, uh, you know, Canada has, as you mentioned, prevailed. And you know, for many years afterwards, uh, that's changed over recent years, of course. But for many years after that, the Canada, most of the Canada Cups, and uh, uh, you know, they were the dominant team and or the best team in, in those tournaments, with the exception of the one in 81. And uh, and then, as you mentioned, World Juniors that started when we were getting our best teams there, not just club junior teams. They started winning. So, yeah, there was that mindset that this is our game. We're the best. And there's no way these quote unquote amateurs, even though nobody believed they right. were amateurs, amateurs. <laughs> uh, but these quote unquote amateurs could possibly uh, upend and beat the NHLers. Uh, I once featured a book called Dream Team uh, by Jack McCollum about the uh, 92 basketball dream team. One of my favorite mm-hmm. parts about the book was how they picked the team and the Isaiah Thomas, Michael Jordan drama. 1972, man, that's one of my, that's got to be my favorite part of the book. The politics be, behind picking the team, the players that weren't in the NHL, like Bobby Hall not being allowed to play. And they even went up the ladder as far as they could to beg uh, for permission and couldn't get it. What about the politics of kind of putting the Canadian team together? I thought it was fascinating in the book. Um, well, there, yeah, there was a lot of politics because it, at that time, that summer, uh, the WHA was just coming onto the scene, the World Hockey Association, the rival league, and needless to say, there was a lot of uh, the NHL owners not very happy about that. Uh, the American owners in the league at the time had zero interest in a Canada-Soviet series. Uh, they didn't want their players hurt. And uh, as I say, they did, said, what's in it for us, that type of thing. And they certainly didn't want uh, players going signing with the World Hockey Association to be part of this series and to lend credence to the, being a pretty good league if people seeing them on that bigger stage. So, uh, And then there was politics of, you know, Alan Eagleson was running the Players Association. He was a prominent player agent, agent as well at yeah. the time. And, uh, you know, obviously some of his clients or a lot of his clients uh, dotted that roster. And uh, so there were all these different forces coming together. And ultimately, 
when the the agreement was made to have it ha- to allow it to happen, the NHL just made it clear that we will give you our players for the series, but anybody who hasn't signed a contract with an NHL team by on the eve of training camp in in mid-August, uh, if they sign with the WHA, then they can't be a part of this. And so, you know, the likes of uh, Bobby Hull, uh, Jerry Cheevers, J.C. Trombley, Derek Sanderson, who were all uh, part of the original con- uh, conceptual roster, uh, were all left off and weren't allowed to play. And as you mentioned, Stephen, there were people that, including Eagleson, who desperately wanted to win this thing and have the best team ever because he had a vision for international competitions like this. Um, he went to the Prime Minister of Canada yeah. to say, you've got to step in here and order these guys to do it. And uh, Clarence Campbell, who was the president of the NHL at the time, says, I don't care what you say. <laughs> I'm, nope. I'm running the show here. It's not going to happen. It's amazing. And I don't know if there's ever been a hockey team with more players or prospective players that had pregnant wives and ran hockey schools. I mean, it's like every player, it's like, yeah, he was going to play, but he had a pregnant wife. Uh, He played, but his wife was pregnant. He missed the first 18 days of his kid's life. Or I had a hockey school. Every guy had a hockey school. I had a hockey school. Now, I worked hockey schools in college. It was a great way to make money for Pearl Jam concerts. But, uh, (laughs) like, wow. Talk about a lot of hockey schools. You got to remember that, you know, prior to the WHA arriving, the, you know, and prior to Eagleson really getting a foothold with the Players Association, the players had zero leverage when it came to contracts, and they weren't making big money. Uh, you know, maybe making more than the average guy on the street, but it's not making the the crazy money that we well, obviously see today. But right. even even for that time, and so a lot of them did have summer jobs. They either worked on the on their family farms because they came from rural areas and you know you did that because you couldn't afford to hire help you, that's just part of what you did or a lot of guys were you know sort of uh, greeters and uh, front men for breweries and, and made appearances that way and you know period golfton a lot of them still do today but for different reasons but uh and then a lot of guys had their hockey schools because that's how they supplemented their income and so it was a challenge for them and you know you read it in the book phil and tony esposito talking about you know, they lost a, a ton of money that they had to give back because uh, they had to shut down their hockey school for a month after uh, after they accepted the invitation. So it was impactful for the players from that perspective. Well, yeah, I think Esposito says in the book, he turned it down like three or four times because yeah. he mentioned he was so focused on winning Stanley Cups and that he finally had a contract that he felt was pretty lucrative, not guaranteed at the time, was really concerned about potentially getting hurt I, I just found all of that around it very fascinating and there's more details if you pick it up 1972 the series that changed hockey together and it was also interesting they ended up with too many players 35 players and a lot of promises made that everyone would play in at least one game promises that they couldn't keep um i know the two sabers on the team left at one point right uh, uh martin and perot left and right. came home because they just weren't playing enough and uh, Punch Imlac, who was in charge of the Sabres at the time, you mentioned in the book, said, well, if you're not playing, you might as well come get ready for the season. Um, so I thought that that was fascinating too, just how many players they had and how they managed to take that 35 number into, you know, a 24 or whatever uh, for game day and some of the promises that were made that ultimately couldn't be kept. Well, they had the 35 because they, there was nobody else to play for 
exhibition games, right. you know, through through the training camp. So they had to have that so they could do the, you know, the red-white split squad games uh, to help them get ready. Because, you know, even though it was going to be, in their minds, a bit of a walkover and uh, quote-unquote exhibition series, they still had to be, you know, as, as well-prepared as they could. And, uh, and uh, you know, back in the day, a lot of nobody was on the ice in the summertime unless it was at their hockey school. And, you know, you didn't train year-round the way we w- the way they do today and so anyway they, they needed the 35 so they could fill out the two teams for their inner squad games exhibition games during the camp and because they thought this was going to be an easy series it would be easy for everybody to play and most guys wouldn't want to play every game anyway because right. they'd have to be having some fun and uh but the way the series turned it became very intense and they had to as once certainly by the time they left Canada, they realized that everybody was not going to play. They would lose guaranteed, uh, that they had to pare this down to a, a 20, 21, 22 man roster and shorten the and bench. So to shorten speak. the bench. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, yeah. and go with that group, allow them to, to come together as a team. And some guys were upset about it. And some, in the case of the two Sabres, as you mentioned, were getting pressure from Imlac to say, come on back here. We're starting camp. And, you know, Martin wasn't playing at all, and Gilbert actually played in Game Four and, and five scored. And right, he scored. Played goal. really, really yeah. well, and I think he probably would have finished the series playing, but he gave in to that pressure. And you know, unfairly for the players, and I mentioned, and it's been a story that's long lasted too long in terms of uh, you know there was Vic Hadfield was involved, Josh Lingavermaw, whose wife was having some issues back home health wise. Um, you know, all those guys were vilified for leaving and called traitors and all the rest of it. And that really wasn't fair because, you know, the, the Team Canada Brass had said to them, I said, this is the roster we're by and large going with. If you want to leave, you can. Uh, if you want to stay, you can. <clears throat> and uh, uh, according to Hadfield, that th- those who decided to go, figuring they'd be better off going to their own NHL training camps, were told that that explanation would be given to the media and to the public, uh, uh, but it wasn't. And so for many years, they were vilified for as being traitors for, for leaving that team during the series, even though uh, none of them, well, other than Perot, I think, but none of them probably would have played. Well, let's stop for one second because anyone who grew up watching this game, you got a guy, right? And my, like, for example, my guy growing up was Pavel Bure. Um, uh, my dad's guy is Gilbert Perot, so I got to do this for dad. You got any Perot stories that maybe didn't make the book or did make the book or anything Perot-wise you can give to my dad, who is one of my number one listeners, so I figured I have to give him a chance here to hear a Perot story. Well, the only story, uh, nothing from within the series that I recall off the top of my head. I mean, he was a very quiet guy. He just a superstar player, one of the most fabulous skaters that I've ever seen. One of those guys that could be gliding and seemingly would be accelerating at the same time. And, you know, stick handling ability and all of that. But just a quiet guy that, you know, went about his business. But because of everything that happened and, and, and leaving the team and not feeling that he had really contributed that much. Um, for years afterwards, when they had reunions and anniversary celebrations, he wouldn't go because mm-hmm. he, he said, I wasn't part of that winning team. And uh, it's kind of a shame, you know, because yeah. uh, he, had he was a part of that team. Yeah, yeah. He scored a goal, so. correct, in one of the games too? He scored in Vancouver for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yep. 
So that's too bad that he felt that way. Uh, so yeah. so the series gets going in Montreal, and that's where kind of the awake the rude awakening happens, right? And it's two one one in in Canada in the four games. Uh, not what not what was expected. Who do you think was stunned the most by the the game in Montreal? Was it the fans? Was it the players? Was it the media? Was everyone equally stunned? Like, what do you think overall? Everyone when that Montreal game ends, what was the temperature like? I think everybody was. There was one giant stun gun went off across yeah. Canada that night. Uh, everybody from coast to coast was stunned because, as I said, off the top, that's not what they were told how the series was going to unfold. And, you know, 30 seconds in Canada scores, you know, five or six minutes in they're up two nothing and everybody thinks, okay, this is the way it's supposed to yep, be. Let's do it. But it's, the players on the bench were already looking at each other saying, these guys are good. They're in great shape. We've got our hands full here. And as the night evolved, obviously they end up losing seven to three. So there was just, you know, you could hear a pin drop in the form after the game and, uh, the papers were coming out and just, you know, the media was annihilating the team. Uh, some of the players told stories about their families, seeing them after the game in the hallway at the Montreal, old Montreal farm. And they were calling them bums and, and all the rest <laughs> of it. Your uh, own family giving it to yeah, you. Yeah. Just because everybody was of that, or virtually everybody was of that belief that that wasn't going to happen. This wasn't a possibility. This wasn't the way the series. This was going to be an exhibition of Canada's showing of Canada's greatness, uh, but in a different way of of being dominant. And instead, they ended up showing their greatness in the way that they battled back and found a way to win the series. But uh, so it became great for different reasons. And you have to remember too that there was another emotion involved. Uh, at that time, as I had mentioned about the, the divide in the world between the East and the West, the communists yep. and the capitalist democracy. So uh, we didn't know much about the Soviets other than what we saw in the nightly news. And they were this scary country that was invading other countries in, in, in Eastern Europe. And, uh, and we feared them because the Cold War was on. And so there was a national pride that was really, really prevalent at that time. And so to lose to them... And to lose that way, that was a, a, an additional emotion that played into it for both the players and 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 fans alike. And and because of that, the series took on a, a real different, bigger edge than being just a a great hockey series. But this was a battle of of wills. This was a battle of cultures, a battle of politics, a battle of ways of life. That's how all of that was being. Uh, felt by the players as, as the series unfolded. One thing I thought of when I was reading the book, and it kind of goes off what you were saying right now, is a lot of the emotions, a lot of the storylines, a lot of the politics are very similar to if I was reading a book called 1980, you know, about the U.S. and their triumph over uh, mm-hmm. Russia at the Olympics. You know, it seems like a lot of the same themes of playing for country in a sense, not just the hockey team, but the country's role in the cold war and, you know, having that emotion of not losing to the Soviets and uh, triumphing against them. Cause similar to the way Canada had fallen behind here, the U S famously had the game at Madison square garden where they lost 11, nothing or whatever to Russia and then to beat them in the tournament. So I just felt that that was a little bit of a similarity uh, just well, the- in terms of the emotions and themes. Yeah, well, the other context of of the day, to, to your point, is that in in seventy two, 
while the series was going on. Uh, I mean, the, the U.S. and Canada, to a certain degree, I suppose, but we were riveted by a chess match, an international chess match between right. Bobby Fischer and Boris Spassky, a U, uh, you know, American versus a Soviet, and that was on national t- on the the national news every night, and people were were hanging on to every result because it was us versus them. And Incredible. nobody would have paid attention to a chess match. Right. But since, because probably, right? it because this international uh, flavor and dynamic to it, that just speaks to how people felt at that time about the world and their part of the world. Do you think that the Bobby Clark slash changed the tournament? Do you think that that's not the reason, but a big reason why Canada wins. I mean, you take away potentially Russia's best player for the one game. I know he played in the game after that. I don't know how effective he could have been with a broken bone in his ankle, but how how important do you think the slash is in terms of the results? And do you think that that's a little bit of a black eye uh, for the team and for the way they won? I know that there's a lot of complaints about Russia being real dirty with the sticks and that Canada didn't quite relate to that because they're more used to, you know, having fights, uh, you know, the, a, a different kind of justice in hockey in North America where they felt like the Soviets were out to hurt them and were being dirty with the sticks. I think it was Esposito who said he got a really nasty slash behind the knee and um, it really pissed him off. But what do you think about the Bobby Clark slash? Is there too much made of that? Is there not enough? Do you, because I know there was a documentary, um, maybe one of the 30 for 30s about it, and I know the Russians really feel like that took them out of a chance to win. Yeah, they're they're sour about that to this Still, day. Yeah. yeah, very much so. I mean, well, let's face it, the, he wasn't the same player after the slash. He did miss the one game, came back from the last game, but he you know, he wasn't as effective. Right. Um, so it, it did have an impact. There's no question about that. Uh, was that the reason why they won? I don't think so. I, I guess it contributes to it in some way, but I think that you talk to the Soviet players and, and, and leave that part of it out of the conversation. They will tell you that they kind of lost a little bit of, you know, Ivan Korwaya uses the phrase about you have to respect your opponent. And the minute you stop respecting them, that's when you become vulnerable and you are beatable. And, and there was a feeling, and even the Soviets admitted that, once they won that fifth game, came back to win that fifth game, um, that maybe they just thought this thing was over and mm. they they didn't have that same measure of respect. And, you know, the games were still close after that. But, you know, sometimes players will say you can, just a little edge can make a difference, even if it's just in one goal games, which they were for six, seven, and eight. Um, and I think the Canadians were also finding their way. And even though they're, demoralized after that game five blowing you know four one lead uh you know one of the moments they talked about is they were hated when they left canada but the three thousand canadians who showed up in moscow after they left the ice and that demoralizing game five gave them a standing ovation and again that was another thing that just gave them a little bit of an extra boost going into the next game but they they, they found their conditioning by then uh, they pared down the roster, as we talked about. Uh, they found combinations that were working, and they had a belief in their game again. And uh, so I think a lot of that played into it. And then the Soviets, I think in some ways, underestimated just their the, the never-say-die attitude. And a lot of them said that. And Tarasov, the great coach, 
said that too. He says what they saw was this that Canadian spirit that refuses to quit until the very end. And uh, so I think a lot of those factors played into it as much as as a slash. And and again, I think it's an incident that took on a life long after the series uh, because of the emotions of the day. It was war. Uh, the players said, you you did anything you could do to win. And players like Ron Ellis, a gentlemanly player, most of the time in his career said, I did things that I would never have dreamed of doing in an NHL game and never did in an NHL game. But this was different because of everything that was at stake. And, and the other guys were dirty too. And I mentioned the one story in the book, you mentioned the slash on the back of the knee. You know, Gary Bergman, Ellis told the story of Gary Bergman taking his, getting kicked in the shins by Mihailov and taking his skate boot off after the game and turning upside down and a puddle of blood pouring out of it. He had a hole in his shin, for God's sake. So there's a lot of stuff going on both ways in that series. That one just was a more significant injury than the others for, you know, obviously, and uh, did impact his game. And he'd had a, a great series up to that point. The sportscasters are here with Scott Morrison, the author of a great, great hockey book, 1972, the series that changed hockey forever. A couple more and I'll let you go. A lot of times I'll skip a forward in a book. Not much there. I'm glad I didn't skip this one because I thought Phil Esposito did a great job for you. I thought he was really, really honest, had some really interesting points. One thing he said, and I'm curious to get your opinion on it, is he said he thought that you know if they had a month to get ready – and they knew what they were going into, and they had all the players. He, he said he didn't think the team should be called Team Canada because he didn't think they had all of the best players because of the exclusion of the uh, no, WHA team players. Team NHL in his, in right. his eyes. Yeah. Exactly. So do you agree with Esposito there that, that Canada really suffered, especially in the Canadian games, from a lack of preparation and, uh, you know, this – this idea that they're thrown together and then they're going against a team of quote unquote amateurs who's essentially their job year round is to train to play in these games. Yeah, I think, I mean, the other player we didn't mention who was missing because of injury was Bobby Orr. Bobby Orr, of course, yeah. So if he's healthy, nice to have him. <laughs> what, what a different maker that is. And sure. would he, he would have helped the power play that struggled throughout that series. So you add him and a few of the other players that the, you know, the WHA guys, you're definitely a stronger roster. Uh, the, the interesting thing is, and Paul Henderson is quick to mention it, he said, you know, had Bobby Hall been allowed to play, Paul Henderson wouldn't have. He wouldn't right. have made the team. And how, how would that have changed history, perhaps? Who knows? Um, but, yeah, I think if you add some of those players and you definitely have a different mindset going into training camp and how you approach that, uh, they would have been, you know, if they had been prepared properly for game one in Canada and those four games in Canada, um, yeah, I, I think they would have won the series, but I don't think it would have been lopsided. I, I don't think so. I, because all those games in, in Moscow, when they were, you know, at or near the top of the game, were, were still close. all one goal, one goal games. Yeah. And, you know, great games. So I, I think he would have had four better games in Canada than what we ultimately saw. But I, I think they would have prevailed, but uh, I don't think it would have been a, a lopsided series. I think it would have been an even better series because you would have had more, even more talent on the ice. Yeah, that is a frustrating thing about international competitions. Like, I'm a huge fan of Italian soccer, uh, the national team. And uh, 
you know, you go into these games and it's like we don't have Chiesa because he tore his ACL in a Juventus game or whatever. You know, and we see it with the World Juniors too. You know, it's like, well, yeah, we're going to World Juniors, but we're not going to have Connor McDavid because he's, you know, already in the NHL and they won't want to play or whatever. You know, the U.S., so we're not going to have Patrick Kane or whoever. You know, we deal with this all the time. And it's either injuries or availability or whatever the case. Someone's wife was pregnant or they had a hockey school in this case. But let's talk for a second about the goal that everyone remembers back in old 72 um, because it's the first thing I think of anytime I hear about this series, probably because of that. I'm a huge tragic hip fan and that lyric, God bless Gord Downing, we miss you. But um, that was not like the only goal Paul Henderson scored. He scored like eight goals in the series, right? Like he was awesome the whole series. Well, and he scored the game winner in game six. He scored an absolutely amazing goal in game seven where it was Paul against three Soviet defenders and got through them and, and beat Treciak to score what was the game winner in that game as well. And had they not blown the, the lead in game five, he would have had the game winner in that one. And you, boy, you think about how history could have changed is, you know, he had a concussion in that game and they, he was told that you shouldn't be playing anymore, but he begged them to let him come back and play. And, uh, if, you know, if he'd left the series at that point, Phil Esposito had had a heart issue where he had to go to the hospital and get an examination. Everything was fine. He would have, he had, a, he literally has a big heart, um, and he was over overworking it. Uh, but if they'd lost those two guys after Game Five, how different would history have been and the series have been? But then, of course, as you mentioned, uh, Paul Henderson, he scores the winning goal in game eight with the amazing comeback down five three after two periods and uh, as paul says it wasn't the prettiest goal i've ever scored i'm remembered for the garbage goal i got and uh, the best goal i ever scored the greatest goal in my life skill wise was in game seven and nobody remembers that one they all remember game eight for obvious reasons but you know he was the hero but the the best player on that canadian team from start to finish was was phil esposito who was as we talked about, didn't want to be there in right. the beginning. Yeah. But, you know, he's a competitor. And especially after that first game, became a, a real competitor. And he took that team on his back and played, uh, some would say, the greatest hockey of his life. One last question about Paul Henderson, because it's been an issue lately or discussed lately. Do you think he should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame? I do. Mm-hmm. I, I have for a long time. Um, I think, you know, the, the Hall of Fame, it, it shouldn't just recognize a career of achievements it should recognize great moments and achievements and you know henderson had a a pretty good nhl career to be invited to that roster even with the defections or to make that roster even with the guys who weren't allowed to be there you had to be a pretty good player that that was a heck of an invitation list and and to get on that team and be one of only a handful to play all eight games in the series that speaks volumes too and then to rise to the occasion the way he did in you know certainly the last four games of the series that is amazing in itself and you know i think we judge others and with different measurements in terms of you know you know women's hockey we've put some great female players in and deservedly so but they play in different circumstances uh you know for years it was just the americans and canadians that were at the elite level Uh, but they were honored because they were the elite amongst those elite te- two teams. And we've put Soviet players in as, as we should very deserving, you know, Yakashev and Tretiak, uh, but 
they played in different circumstances, so we measure them differently. And I, I think in the case of Henderson and where his greatness lies, I think he should be measured for what he achieved in that series on top of what he did as, as an NHL player as well. So I, I definitely think he should be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I mean, the Hockey Hall of Fame is not the NHL Hall of Fame, right? I mean, it's a Hockey Hall of Fame, which I think should always consider everything that a hockey player did in his career, right from World Juniors or whatever on. Um, so I agree with you. I think he should be in as well. The book. I mean, he, you could argue he scored one of the most important goals in hockey history. Top five, that right? Seri- not debatable. Because that series, that series changed hockey forever. Yeah. On so many levels. And not everybody's convinced it would have happened as quickly had Canada lost that series and Henderson not did what he did, that a lot of the Canadians would have wanted to forget about the series and that the game might not have grown as quickly as it did as a result. So, I mean, it's just, it, it's a moment in Canadian history that is, you know, it's not just Canadian hockey history, it's Canadian history, period, because of the impact that series had on a nation. And well, 25 million people roughly at the time, and they estimated 16 million were watching those final games. Like that tells you what the wow. series was, what yeah. it meant to to our country. And uh, the, the country literally stood still for those games. And so, you know, just the just everything that it meant on and off the ice, I just, I, I think Paul in the moment should be in the Hall of Fame. I know the team's been honored, but I just think he should be in as an individual. I agree with you. The author's name is Scott Morrison. You can find him on Twitter. He's at S. Morrison Media. if you want to say hello there. The book is called 1972, uh, The Series That Changed Hockey Forever. It's available in hardcover and, of course, also ebook format. You can get it in Apple Books or for the Kindle if you prefer to read that way. Um, I absolutely loved it, and I got an idea, Scott. How okay. about, like, in two years from now, you come back and we talk about your book called 1987? What okay. Think? What do you think? Yeah, there you go. Do I've written Cana- about the I've written about the eighty seven series. So a whole book about it already. Well, I did a I did a book uh, many years ago about some of the great international series, and and certainly that was one of them. And uh, uh, so a large chunk of the book was about that. And uh, okay, I think it was my my good friend Ed Willis in Vancouver did a book on the eighty seven series, and uh, one of my upcoming books is about Mike Keenan, who was the coach of that eighty seven yeah. series. So we will have a large segment of that book dedicated to the to that series which because 87 became uh you know for canadians and for hockey fans period perhaps for a next generation it was 1972 for a next generation of of hockey fans with uh, how that series unfolded and how great the hockey was and ironically a 6-5 score identical score to wrap it all up and uh, and another late goal and a great Canadian comeback one more time. So, so many different ways that series was, uh, yeah, 72 for the next generation. And, uh, and we've had other great moments after that as we always will because, uh, you know, new generations and new great players and new great moments. And, uh, but 72 will always be just that much more special because it was the first and we'll never have, a matchup like that again. And, uh, and again, as I said, uh, because of the drama that was there on top of all the, the excellence on the ice and just the way the world was at the time, it's, uh, it just gave it that much more importance. And, uh, and, uh, again, why it's so revered 50 years later. 
Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time, so we're not going to be able to talk about the uh, great moment in 2010. We're just going to skip right over that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no time to talk about one. the Crosby goal. Uh, but, yes, I mean, hey, in 87, not bad when you can look down at the bench with a big face off and say, you know what, I'm going to throw out Mario, Wayne, and Howard Chuck. Let's go with that. Not bad, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you one very quick story. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, please. So Mike Keenan shared the story with me. He said in that third game, he said he was playing Gretzky like mad in the first period, like crazy in the first period. And he said that Wayne came to him at one point. He just said, I got to sit for a few shifts. I'm just bagged. I just I got to regroup. And the candidate had fallen behind in the game. And uh, uh, so Mike said, okay, fine, fine. And that's when he started using some of the guys off the bench, like Brent Sutter and Tarkett. And they actually got them back in the game, as it turned out. Uh, you know, Gretzky impacting one way or another, he always had an impact on the game. But Mike just said, he remembers looking down at the Soviet bench and Victor Tikhanov was the coach. And he said, Tikhanov kept looking over because there's just glass between the two benches. They were on side by side back in the day. And he said, Tikhanov kept looking over at him all the time. And he said, Mike says, I knew what he was thinking. He said, like Keenan's a, a maniac. He's an idiot. He's Bench Gretzky. How the <laughs> hell do you bench Gretzky? <laughs> That's great. I can't wait for the Keenan book. We got to stay in touch. I got to have you back for that because coaching the 94 Rangers, which the 94 yeah. Rangers Devil Series is the best NHL playoff series in my lifetime. Uh, and I was I told you I was a huge Bray guy and also a Rangers fan. So I love that Stanley Cup. Um, and uh, I gotta, I gotta hear the story about Kovalev too. What Keenan says about the uh, the, the never-ending shift or whatever, because Kovalev will yes. come off the That's ice. What, so, Twelve-minute shift, yeah. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm looking forward to the. That sounds awesome. The Keenan book. I actually just read a feature that Sports Illustrated did on Keenan in '95. I have a book that's like just a collection of Sports Illustrated stories, and they wrote about him in '95, just when he had went to St. Louis, and he kind of. Uh, it, it was he's an interesting guy so i'm looking forward to that uh one more yeah. time i want to put it out there uh, 1972 the series that changed hockey forever and this is a book for any hockey fan or any fan of international politics or uh many different uh topics it covers and it's amazing and i loved it and thank you so much uh mr morrison for letting me promote it and to talk to you about it today well thanks for having me Stephen. thoroughly enjoyed it do you have any questions for me uh, I do not. Okay, but, okay. Uh, just check. I see you have a lot of uh, great guests on your show, and I'm yes. uh, I'm very uh, pleased and uh, flattered to be part of that group. So hopefully, it uh, lived up to expectations. Yeah, it was great. And like I said, I can't wait. Is the Keenan book next? Uh, I got a Doug McLean book coming first, okay. and then uh, which is uh, not it's Doug's hockey with hockey stories, not his life story per se, but. Uh, and then Keenan right on the heels of that. So next year is going to be a couple books coming out. All right. Well, we'll have you on a couple times then next year, and we'll talk about them. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Thank you, Mr. Morrison. Okay. Take care, Stephen. Right, I want to thank Scott Morrison and, of course, Sean McDonough for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can find this episode, Season 12, Episode 1 from last week, and all episode of the Sportscasters on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com 
slash sports dash casters. You can find us on Twitter. We're at sports underscore casters. Email me, please do the sportscasters at gmail.com. And how about a five-star review? If you haven't done one, we haven't had a review at all in like three years on Apple Music. If there's anyone or Apple Podcast, there's anyone who, who thinks that it's worth their time to give a review, whether it be five stars or even one, please do that. I appreciate it. Don't forget to check out Greetings from Allentown Live uh, with our friend Peter Winston and Keithy at GF Allentown. Allentown Pod on that. I mentioned last week Adrian Dater, good dude, ColoradoHockeyNow.com at a Dater on Twitter. Hopefully, you're going to have uh, Adrian on soon to talk about the Colorado Avalanche uh, winning the Stanley Cup. Also, a uh, real quick shout out to my other podcast, the 24 Inch Podcast with my friend Hollywood Dave Rowland and my daughter Paula Bennett. Uh, we're going to hopefully be doing uh, that podcast again real soon. Uh, Hollywood Dave's job uh, has been giving him a little bit of agita, uh, switching locations, um, and he's kind of settling in. And hopefully once he does, uh, we'll be ready to get back on the ball with the 24-inch podcast. If you're a fan of it, hang in there with us. We'll be back soon. All right. Also on the 24-inch podcast is my daughter, Paula Bennett. And we're going to do one last thing right now, and it's going to be about Paula Bennett. Uh, I want to give you a little bit of an update on her because I couldn't do it last week, obviously, because I was talking about everything I'd been through and also she was in and out of the room and I don't want her head to get too big, but I did want to talk about what a great daughter she is uh, and how amazing she's been the last seven months um, and how hard this is on her, uh, but how well she takes it in stride. But first, how about a little update? She's six years old um, on June 16th, uh, she turned six years old. Uh, her, she had a party the Sunday before uh, at a place called Roly Polies. It's like an indoor gym. Uh, they have like bounce houses and trampolines and zip lines and all this stuff. And she had her very first kids party uh, with um, kids from school and friends and cousins. And uh, I was able to go to that and have a lot of fun with her and all the kids. Uh, and then her birthday was on the 16th and her family party was on the 17th or excuse me, the 18th, uh, which unfortunately I wasn't able to be at because I was in the hospital and I had had surgery the day before, uh, which is very unfair to a six-year-old girl for her dad not to be at her sixth birthday party, or the family version anyway. Uh, But Tammy and I discussed it, and we didn't think it would be the right move to switch it. Um, We were worried about how she would be. Um, We knew she wouldn't be able to come to the hospital to see me and we thought it'd be better to have the party uh, and put her mind at ease normalcy you know we didn't want to use the word cancel or postpone Uh, we just wanted to have some normalcy let her have her party Um, and I was totally fine with that understood Tammy like I said Tammy and I discussed it we thought it was the best thing to do and she had a she had a good day that day instead of I don't know sitting around and worrying about that which I absolutely uh, did not want uh, she uh, played t-ball all summer, which she's been doing for a few years. Uh, she had a great time doing that. Great coach this year. She was on the Cincinnati Reds, um, so she was excited about that. She looked great in the red uniform and her red hat, uh, and she had a lot of fun doing that. She just started cheerleading, uh, which has been her dream to do cheerleading, but it didn't start until first grade, six years old. So she's been waiting and waiting and waiting. 
and she's finally started that, so she's really excited about that. Um, she obviously finished kindergarten. She's going to be going into first grade next year. Um, she's doing really well. She's a really sweet girl, um, which is good because sometimes dad's not the sweetest guy. So I'm glad that she seems to have inherited maybe more of mom's personality traits uh, in terms of being sweet and treating people really well and uh, being well-liked. Sort of, She reminds me of my brother, Anthony. It just seems like everyone who meets her really likes her and really enjoys her. And I hope that's a quality uh, that she keeps with her forever because she really is a delight to be around. And um, uh, we're really proud of that. Also, I know we talked about this in the past. In 2019, when I was sick, uh, she was three years old at the time and we called her Paula the mini nurse. And she really embraced that. And I think in her mind, she thinks she's a nurse. And uh, uh, 2022 is no different. Um, She was Paula the mini nurse. And uh, whether it was during the period when I had the bag or whether it was uh, after getting the bag removed, you know, in this last few weeks, uh, she's taking care of me daily. She checked my bandages. She'd take my pills out. She would help me cut tape. Um, she would look me over and examine me. Um, I don't know what she was looking for or at, uh, but she did it and she did it diligently and seriously. And she would tell Nurse Beth, who was the visiting nurse that would come in, a report every day and let her know if she thought she should look at something or let her know I was doing well. Um, and, uh, wow, what a great thing to have, you know, uh, Paula, the mini nurse. And I, you know, I feel awful. And I mentioned it last time. It's, I feel awful when it comes to my health and the strain that it puts on Paula and Tammy. That's what I hate. I think I said, I can handle all the other stuff, the surgeries, the pain, all that I can handle. But it crushes me to see them affected. Um, And for all the positive I just said, you know, Paula was scared. And she would tell Tammy, is dad going to be able to do this again? Can dad do this? I had to miss a lot of her t-ball games. I didn't get to go to her dance recital this year. Um, I missed some stuff. And she missed me being there. And um, it's difficult. And she would tell Tammy in private. She would ask her, is dad going to get better? Is is everything going to be okay? Is dad going to die? You know, just all kinds of things like this. And we would talk to her and I would try to find a way to bring it up without letting her know that Tammy had said something to me about it and kind of try to set her straight and let her know, no, you know, dad's going to be okay. And we, we made a bucket list of things we wanted to do when I got better. And the very first she, thing she said is, I just want to go to lunch with you. I just want to have a daddy-daughter lunch. And uh, we did it. We had a daddy-daughter lunch. And um, we, we like to do obstacle courses in the backyard. And we've been doing those again. And just been reaching all these little milestones of getting back to normal and getting back in our normal routine. And, um, you know, for a girl that's, when she was three years old and when she was six years old, had a dad who, you know, essentially at times was bedridden and had a ileostomy bag and had all these surgeries and spent all these days. I probably spent 100 days in the hospital 
in her life already. She's only six years old. Um, she has a wonderful quality that a lot of children have, and I learned that uh, working in the schools when I did, is kids are resilient, and Paula is very resilient. Um, and I'm so grateful um, to have a daughter uh, as bold as her, uh, you know, bold enough to be the mini nurse and uh, bold enough to uh, take on the family problems head on and uh, to do the best that she could to stay focused at school and dance and all those things. Um, it's just it makes everything easier. Um, and I know that's a little bit of a contradiction because I told you how hard it is for me uh, to deal with the strain it puts on them. But I can't imagine how hard that would be to deal with if Paula wasn't as resilient and as special as Paula is. And I know that people love uh, to hear on these podcasts with me, whether it be this one uh, or the um, 24-inch podcast. And maybe someday we'll even let you guys hear the daddy and daughter podcasts that we record uh, but don't post. Uh, but here's to my daughter, Paula, six years old. Keep it up, kid. Chase Miss Pretty Lies. We face the path of time.